Zero Brightness, a podcast about horror video games. My name's Ali. I'm joined by my friend, James. <laughs> How's it going, James? Oh, hey. Uh, today, we have something a little bit different for you. You know, usually <laughs> we have sort of a discussion about mm-hmm. a horror video game that we have chosen. But today, I think it's going to be more of a debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so we're talking about Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Dark Moon. Right. For the Nintendo GameCube. 2002, Silicon Knights. And uh, I, I've had zero history with this game, but I know that it's, it's a fan favorite. So I, I, came into, I came into Eternal Darkness with an open mind and open heart, and I just didn't like it very much. Yeah, so uh, I did the math, and this was, I think, my 10th time playing it. (laughs) So I think I can safely say I'm a fan of it. And uh, basically, you guys don't know this, y'all listening out there, but I've been just dealing with James just (laughs) ragging on this fucking game for like two weeks now. And it's just filled me with like rage that I had nowhere to go. Like, I could just, the only thing I could do would be just, like, text or, like, type in lol fuck you, and that was it. And so now, like, the ineloquent rage has been sort of burning within me, and uh, now it's ready to come out, hopefully, as eloquent rage. And, uh, yeah, we're going to find out a lot about ourselves on this episode, I think. We're going to test the (laughs) limits of our friendship. Uh, if James, if you didn't know, you're going to find out that I used to be a debate coach. So we'll see what happens. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I am a, uh, I'm a decorated general in the meme wars of 2016 through 2018. So <laughs> come at me, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's about what I expected. Anyway, before we get going, we have a couple of, uh, shout outs, things to say. Uh, uh, shout out to the universe because we got 5,000 listens, probably like way more by the time you hear this, but Hey, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Super cool. Thank y'all so much for listening to our show. Uh, we always run a bumper telling you what to do, but you guys actually kind of did some of it. So that's cool. But, uh, yeah, keep, hey. l- keep listening, you know, keep leaving we need us some five star reviews. Yeah. Uh, you can give us a dollar a month. Mm-hmm. Feed us, please. Yeah, you gotta feed. You gotta feed the content machine. Daddies need that clock tower for PS One. Uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, I mean, that's basically the plan with all the money now. I think is just to like buy video games, <laughs> buy stupid video games. I mean, yeah. we're already at late stage capitalism. Who knows? By the time we save up for Rule of Rose, society may have ended already. Yeah. You know? So I mean, I'll go for clock tower. Yeah, I mean, or we'll just, like, buy guns and get ready for the the war that's coming or whatever. <laughs> AK-47? <laughs> yeah. Red Army Special? Either way, I mean, you go, we're going to need some money, I think. See, that's, that's how you, you can tell I'm in it just for the aesthetics, because I want the Red Army Special with, <laughs> with the Woodstock. The jams a lot. <laughs> or no, I think that's that's the thing, is that it didn't jam. The M16 jammed a lot. Oh, That's really? what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. 
Anyway. We're not gun people. That's why we <laughs> lost Vietnam, I think I read somewhere. <laughs> Another thing we want to do that, James, I think this was your idea, but we never do, is I did want to shout out the music that we make because both of us are musicians. Oh, yeah. Which was like yeah. sort of the original concept of the show is like, I guess it's funny that we know this much about horror games. <laughs> but uh, so two two points here. Number one is that uh, James has a fantastic band called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. And oh. I recently found out that their shit is all on Spotify now, which it didn't used to be. Uh, and that yeah. was a like game changer because now I can just listen to it all the time, which is more or less what I've been doing. So... Uh, yeah, so I've been like super like anti-streaming for a really long time, but several people on the last couple tours have told me like, "Hey, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you not on Spotify?" Yeah, so I decided to suck the big corporate cock and sell out for Spotify. Enjoy listening to my music and never paying for it. <laughs> Buy a record or something. Yeah, I mean. In case you don't know, the business model nowadays is that you have to buy something from us and then you can listen to it all you want on Spotify. So we're doing you guys a solid by putting it up, but then you have to do us a solid by like buying a t-shirt or something, which, you know, a lot of people do. And I've actually, that's kind of why I came around on streaming. I, like you, was always like super against it. And then people just kept on asking me, but I was noticing the people who are asking me the most were the people who also like owned my records. Yeah, that's true. So it's like... Well, and it's people that want to like hear your music. And yeah. there's something intangibly cool about that. So I guess, fuck it, right? Right. That's how that works, I think. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if I sold my guitars, I'd make more money than I ever did making music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's because you have nice guitars. See, the trick is don't have nice guitars. Mm. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Well... I'll think about it. Don't have any nice gear, actually. Just have a lot of it. <laughs> um, yeah. And, both? and then I was just going to shout out my own band, which is called Another Heaven. We are putting out a record on vinyl. I think probably around the time this episode will be out. Uh, so you can go listen to that. You can buy that. We put out a Kate Bush cover that. Uh, yes. Yeah. We spent a lot of so time. So good, dude. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> uh, we spent a lot of time learning it and then recording it and then making a video by running around our where we live at night and scaring people and their dogs which is actually what we did yeah i was like did they really like get in that lake at like three in the morning yeah (laughs) oh man yeah well cole did of course because he was like i want to go in a lake and i was like he's a trooper he he wanted to it was like his whole thing and i was like all right buddy like you're going in the damn lake but yeah i posted a clip we did like this lady's dog got really scared because we were wearing these like fucked up costumes and then like (laughs) we like drove out to the middle of a field and it was just lit by like the headlights of my car Uh and like we really didn't think anyone was going to be around and then suddenly this dog like rushes up at cole and then like cole had to sort of like take off parts of the costume and be like i'm a human (laughs) hello mr dog (laughs) um cute so basically you can still have fun in your 30s is what i'm trying to say (laughs) (laughs) you got to you gotta man are you just gonna lose your damn mind oh yeah yeah for sure (laughs) yeah see that's my whole thing is like have shittier guitars as i go on but then have more fun (laughs) hey yeah fun fun matters (laughs) fun matters uh anyway so that's why i played eternal darkness (sighs) 
Yeah, you did. I know. I heard all about it. Uh-huh. Mm. So it's Eternal Darkness, right? It's this game. Came out in 2002 for the Nintendo GameCube. And it was developed by Silicon Knights. Uh, it sure was. It was published by Nintendo. And it was a big deal when it came out. Um, you know, It really was a really big deal. Yeah. For a bunch of reasons. Because on the one hand, you had, oh shit, Nintendo's making an M-rated game. Which was a first. And then mm-hmm. they were making a horror game. Which was basically also a first. And they were also working with... like a US developer which was like a big change for them yeah I mean Silicon Knights they made the original Blood Omen Legacy of Kane which I liked a lot yeah they're actually Canadian not US oh sure okay so western developer Yeah. yeah but Man, when I was a kid, like Legacy of Kane was like really cool. I, I was never into the sequels, like Soul Reaver or anything. Oh, I love like, Soul Reaver, dude. Yeah, I, I played a demo, but um, it was too different from the original for me to like really latch onto. But I played the crap out of Blood Omen, so yeah, yeah. it's probably just a nostalgia thing. But no, no, like Blood Omen rules. I mean, I really like the Legacy of Kane series. There's like three games that I've played in it. I know there's like there's the first one, and then there's Soul Reaver, and then Soul Reaver Two on the PS2. Yeah, um, I guess the Soul Reaver games were made by somebody different. Was that IDOS? I believe it was made by IDOS. Uh, yeah, it's, it's Crystal r- Dynamics and IDOS. Yeah, it's a really different game. It's like a open world action RPG. It's like Goth Mario sixty four. <laughs> yeah. But I love it, dude. <laughs> I fucking love that game. That was like a total Dreamcast classic. Like I played mm. a lot of hours of that game on the Dreamcast. I would love it. Maybe someone already has, but I would love like a remaster of that shit. Mm. I uh, played the demo on PlayStation One a lot. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a great game. It it really at a time when there weren't a lot of games doing it convincingly created like a huge open world that was really fun and it had a cool like other world mechanic where you die and go to this like other world and have to portal back and it did a lot of stuff that other games would do not long after and i think it did it super super well and you know there's other games that also tried to do the same thing and did it horribly like shadow man if you ever played that game <laughs> no but i've been thinking about it you know, what a fucking pile dude like no <laughs> Did you play the 64 version or the PlayStation version? I definitely have played the 64 version. I may have played both. Mm. It might have been on Dreamcast, too. I don't remember. Yeah, it, it may have also. I, that was like one of those games that looked cool, so I kept trying it, and I just always yeah. like hated it. Same yeah. with like Nightmare Creatures 2. That was another one that was on like every system that I kept trying. It was just like, God damn you. I like the first one. I never played the second one. Yeah, no, the first one is cool. The second one is not cool mm. <laughs> but whatever email us if you disagree and really want a nightmare creatures 2 episode <laughs> oh well one day we're gonna have to do like a nintendo 64 horror episode and there there ain't much there yeah it'd be that would be really fun though because yeah it's like a lot of it's a lot of bullshit that would be fun to just like crap <laughs> on yeah um, yeah 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about the context around Eternal Darkness, uh, mm-hmm. not just for the listener, but also for you, James, because I feel like you <laughs> you sort of like willingly missed so much of this just because, you know, it's interesting doing this show with you because you and I like a lot of the same shit. And then we get uh-huh. to certain like corners of things and it's like, <laughs> whoa, you haven't even seen this in both directions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's part of the fun of the show. But this was one where I was like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes, dude. Like, come on. So, you know, Eternal Darkness is first and foremost, before any of the things that we've already said about it, it's an HP Lovecraft adaptation. And mm-hmm. what's cool about it is that they took the work of HP Lovecraft and instead of making a game that was like Call of Cthulhu, which there are like 40 games called Call of Cthulhu and nobody gives a (laughs) shit about any of them because they're all like super mediocre, right? And like, instead of doing that, they created their own world and cosmology that is super, super cool, I think. And I think it's a really, really interesting way to make something like this. So who is H.P. Lovecraft, right? Okay, so when I was in high school, H.P. Lovecraft was my favorite. That's not all you need to know, but that's like a good place to start. Um, (laughs) H.P. Lovecraft is pretty unpopular now because he was a fucking racist and also like maybe a hack. Um, (laughs) However, it is important to like acknowledge that he had a huge influence on all of the genres that he orbited. His work is squarely in the weird tales subgenre, which is basically like a combination of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, Funny enough, I think a lot of his best work is actually squarely in the sort of dark fantasy genre. Um, Mm. It's probably the stuff that gets talked about the least, um, but there is a really good collection of it that whatever publisher puts out his stuff now um, made like a cool collection of... uh, Anyway, Weird Tales was like I said, it's like a combination of those three genres that were largely short stories published in anthology magazines and then later like republished as anthology horror novels. Um, So they're like short story collections moving between all these different genres. They were, a lot of them were like, you know, horror that would have a strong sci-fi component or fantasy that had a strong horror component, you know things like that at the time they were seen as very like base um very like throwaway pulp yeah uh yeah. but over time uh well the authors a lot of them became friends and colleagues because they sort of bonded over being looked down upon and then later on the fans of this stuff kind of had the same thing i mean that's why there are such huge like fan bases for hp lovecraft stuff because for a long time mm-hmm. it was just seen as like trash right yeah in these magazines that were put out, um, there was a ton of them, like some just for fantasy, some just for sci-fi. Right. Uh, it, it was not only a place for writers to get noticed, but it was also a place for them to like test their metal, you know? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of uh, great writers like evolved from that sort of scene. Right. Totally. And so like two of the big ones, you know, H.P. Lovecraft is probably the most well-known. Another one is Robert E. Howard, who uh, created Conan the Barbarian and Mm -hmm. uh, like rose to prominence on the back of that. What's interesting about both of these guys is that they were basically writing these kind of pulpy, trashy to a degree stories, but the tone and the style was really unique. It was super ultra verbose and Mm -hmm. it was very, very, very like formal 
So a lot of times your narrator would be using old, out-of-date words that were, like, very long. Uh, They would be speaking in a way that was, like, almost like a parody of eloquence. And there would be this kind of formality. I think Robert E. Howard is a little bit more relatable because it's, like, a a sort of uh, omniscient narrator who just speaks in these, like, tones of, like, in the days before man, you know, which is, like, a little bit easier to deal with than, like, Lovecraft, where he actually makes a protagonist who's, like, you know, my name is Dr. Edward Roivas. I'm an uh, anthropologist and I'm dead, you know? It's, like... I think with Lovecraft, there's something distancing about it because it's like his protagonists largely who speak in this way. And mm. uh, that can be a real turnoff, you know. Uh, but so it, it was a really weird combination of like high and low art. Like you had this crazy verbose writing combined with these kind of like schlocky horror stories. And that surprisingly had a huge 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 long tail influence on like every genre it touched and especially in the 80s and 90s a lot of like fantasy and horror stuff was very 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 influenced by this genre um Mm -hmm. so personally i see eternal darkness as being in that whole like lineage of artworks you know and specifically because they didn't just pick a lovecraft story and say like okay well shadow over innsmouth okay we're gonna make a game where it's shadow over innsmouth you know um which bethesda did in the early 2000s and it's like pretty shitty (laughs) (laughs) um like uh, and a big forebear to this game i would say is the film in the mouth of madness Mm -hmm. uh if you're familiar james yeah yeah i'm a, a huge sutter kane fan (laughs) yeah dude like okay so in the mouth of madness is like john carpenter haters yeah (laughs) was it 91 92 it says 95 94 okay 94 um yeah i was gonna say sam neil that was a post jurassic park sam neil i believe so check jurassic park's like 93 yeah Um, i think so so In the Mouth of Madness is another work similar to Eternal Darkness where you could look at it as an H.P. Lovecraft like homage or adaptation, but it also came up with all of its own original elements. Yeah. Um, so it's basically about Sam Neill as this, uh, he's like a PI who gets hired by a publisher to track down this author the most famous horror author in the world who's clearly supposed to be Stephen King, but they call him yeah. Sutter Kane. Uh, uh-huh. And he basically has disappeared and it seems weird and mysterious and maybe supernatural. So he goes on this journey to find him and the journey of course takes him, you know, into the mouth of madness, you know, mm-hmm. um, super good and, movie. And just like eternal darkness, it's, it's very flawed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it, sort of set the tone for stuff like this because it I think the people who were making this stuff really really liked Lovecraft and they really mm-hmm. liked the contrast between having this like high and low art they liked the psychedelic elements and they also liked some elements that they lifted straight up like the schlocky overly verbose writing style and like the use of weird antiquated words 
Right. That's one thing I will give this game. The writing is head and shoulders above other survival horror games of the of its, you know, day and age. Right. But I think this like 90s horror thing, it had a lot of the same elements. And even if you look at the 90s adaptations of Stephen King's novels, there's something similar going on too, where like you could take something really, really menacing and dark and make it a little bit more palatable and like schlocky and it works as like a movie Mm. or a TV show. Mm -hmm. I think this game has a lot of that DNA in it. You mean like reanimator? You know, reanimator is sort of a good and bad reference because reanimator is cooler than all the stuff I'm talking about. (laughs) Reanimator is super cool. Right. Like reanimator is the same idea, but, but like if it's cool, Mm -hmm. the thing about stuff like in the mouth of madness and eternal darkness, both of which I fucking love Neither of them is cool. Like they are dorky as fuck, dude. They're like khaki colored new balances. Like they're dorky, (laughs) but they're also like kind of the jam. (laughs) Like that's the thing. I think if you come into this game expecting something like cool, you're not going to get cool. Mm. This is not cool. This is like, listening to ride the lightning and reading hp lovecraft like (laughs) i can get done with that it's not cool though like and i think that's that's one thing like yeah i mean like i don't want to listen to ride the lightning definitely you know i sometimes do uh (laughs) but like i i think that's that's one thing to me that makes the tone and style of this game make sense is looking at those like nineties film adaptations. Mm -hmm. Another huge one, uh, is EC comics. So EC comics were the classic was the classic, like comics label. I think it started in the fifties, but was like very popular in like the sixties. Um, they birthed a lot of classic horror comics. They created Tales from the Crypt, which was later mm-hmm. revived by HBO. I think that's another great reference point for the mm-hmm. tone and style of Eternal Darkness is Tales from the Crypt. Like hmm. that rides the line. Once again, Tales from the Crypt is largely seen as cool culturally, but to <laughs> me, it's way more like I love Tales from the Crypt. Don't get me wrong, but it's once again, it's right on that razor's edge of like, is it cool or like, is it just like super stupid? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I think this game sits right in there, but EC comics, if you know about horror comics, that's like the classic and yeah, for a long time they were hard to read and hard to get a hold of. Um, not so much now, but they're definitely worth checking out. If you like that kind of schlocky horror, that's also kind of creepy. Mm. Um, to go back to movies for a second too. I mean, another big thing is anthology horror. If you're talking about weird tales, if you're talking about HP Lovecraft, like, you can't get away from anthology horror and that eighties, nineties, like anthology horror feel Mm. is all over this game. I mean, creep show is the first one that comes to mind, but yeah, there's obviously tons of them. And personally, like I love anthology horror. I've watched some terrible fucking movies just cause it's like, Oh, a new anthology horror on Netflix. Like, okay, I'm going to watch it. And it's like, (laughs) wow, that was like total, total utter garbage. But yeah, I mean, body bags, trilogy of terror all that good shit yeah and i think that like that whole tone and style is such a huge part of this game's dna well so yeah you you keep hinting at this like serialization of this game Uh uh-huh and that's definitely there 
I'm feeling a more like Goosebumps vibe than like Tales from the Crypt. But yeah, like I totally get that because the the way this game is structured, it's parted out into like 12 different episodes, essentially. Right. And the other thing, too, is that like when you go back to Lovecraft, the way that he created and established his whole cosmology the reason that it feels really cool is that there isn't like one story right there isn't like an origin tale Mm -hmm. where it's like you know in the beginning there was Uliath or whatever like sorry that's not even lovecraft that's from Mm -hmm. eternal darkness because i have that on the brain but um it's slowly seeded into all his stories in a way that is actually like very elegant so if you read them like back in the day before they were like properly collected, if you just read them in a haphazard manner in different anthologies and blah, blah, like you'd get one where you'd see a name like Nyarlathotep and that's just like a tossed off reference in one story. But then there's another, maybe somewhat more elaborated reference in another story. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like that's like one of these gods and you see Cthulhu and it's the same thing where it's like, okay, there's a tossed off reference in this story, but then there's a more full reference in this story. And then there'll be references mm. between stories. So there's like this there's this other big world that's never illustrated, but it's like tying everything together. Yes. And as the reader, you end up doing like a Pepe Silvia type thing and creating your own <laughs> like mood board of like what's going on in Lovecraft stories. And mm. suddenly it's like whether or not the writing is even good, you're super invested and you're like a fan because it's interesting yeah. to piece this stuff together. Right? Yeah. That's something, once again, I think this game nails. Like, for all the criticisms that you are going to make and I'm going to make, too. Because, like, I don't, it was funny going into this because, like, I love this game. But it it's, like, fucked up. And it's, it's got a lot of flaws. And I don't want to be just, like, a cheerleader for it because some of this shit sucks. But, like, yeah, at the same time, for everything that sucks, there's certain stuff that it nails dead on. And that's one of them. The way all the stories <laughs> tie together, the way that they take care to tie every story back to, like the person who's narrating the story which is also not the main character like uh-huh. that shit is cool i guess it's cool james come on <laughs> that is a big part of what's going on in this game and if you're like me when this game came out and you're like what i don't know 15 or something and you already love all that stuff and then this game comes out you're just like oh my god yes and like the other thing too, the other big thing, and we'll get to this later because we super disagree on this, is that like the look of the game is also heavily influenced by everything I just listed. It's very colorful. Mm. It's saturated mm-hmm. with color. It has these like period piece aesthetics. So there's things from different time periods involved. Sort of. Yeah. Well, it does. You can't you can't argue with that. And like it's like it's all stylized in a really ugly way. We'll get to it. But the thing is that it has that aesthetic and it has those elements in it which really differentiates it from anything going else going on in video games Mm. like at the time and especially if you compare it to other like survival horror games from 2002 like dude there's nothing like this game (laughs) anyway another piece of context here uh is that yeah silicon knights created legacy of kane their background is clearly in the sort of PC action adventure realm. And I think a lot of that feel gets ported over to this game. So it's obviously like a 3D hmm. action adventure, you know, character driven game. But like the magic system is like straight out of Diablo. 
like the the slower more methodical combat feels like a way to bridge the gap between pc and console games at the time it's similar to like vats in uh fallout 3 sort of yeah where you can choose which limbs to shoot right but instead of slowing yeah. down time like you would in Fallout 3, which is, I mean, a way more elegant solution. I mean, obviously, it's from 2002. It's, like, kind of clunky. But, like, mm-hmm. the way that they decided to do it was just to make combat slow. So combat is, like, pretty slow and methodical in this game. And, yeah. Yeah, well, sort of. But then there's a ton of it. And sometimes you get machine guns. So... <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like, and this actually ties into my next piece of context, which is what was going on in console survival horror, right? Like, at the time, RE One remake. Yeah, like survival uh, horror was still g- janky, dude. Let's see, let's see, two thousand two horror games. Um, like we got Fatal Frame that same year. Jank. Like this was a good year for survival horror, right? But RE remake, Clock Tower three. RE0. Uh-huh. I mean... But here's the thing. Those games were still tank controls. And those games were still, compared to something that Nintendo would publish, were jank. <laughs> so you're looking at Nintendo publishing something that seems like a survival horror game. They're obviously going mm-hmm. to do it different. That's like the Nintendo influence. So I, I, I think you're touching on something. This that this game doesn't feel like a survival horror game. It's not. It feels more like an adventure game. It's an action adventure game. Right. And Dennis Dyack, the head of Silicon Knights, who seems like a giant fucking asshole, by the way, just side note, uh, he said that they didn't view this game as a survival horror game. They didn't want to make a survival horror game. They wanted to make an action adventure game that had elements of horror and psychological horror. And what he's really saying i think because it's not really psychological horror it's really like they wanted to try and do hp lovecraft Mm -hmm. and the thing too one thing i didn't mention about hp lovecraft is that the reason that i think his writing either comes off as like really brilliant or really hacky depending on like your mood and you know is that his favorite trick is to say like this horror was indescribable there is no way i could describe this horror to you and so (laughs) you know then your mind has to fill in the blanks i think that's what yeah. makes adapting his shit impossible if not really really difficult i mean guillermo del toro tried for years and then just gave up basically um so the developers silicon knights they settled on red blue and green zombies <laughs> no what i'm trying to say <laughs> is that's where you get the like the elements of like fucking with the player the sanity system and all this stuff mm-hmm. is really them trying to think of like Besides just having all the stylistic elements of a Lovecraftian tale, how else would you incorporate the idea that, like, this horror will, like, break your brain and, you know, make you go insane? Which, okay, if that's the problem, this is a pretty elegant solution, especially for 2002. If the other problem is to make a survival horror game that isn't janky and could pull in players from all different backgrounds, I think this is a way more elegant solution than Resident Evil 4. Sure. Hot take. It is... uh uh, it is a more accessible game. I mean, like, anybody could pick up and play this game. Um, whether they would be successful in, like, doing the puzzle stuff is, you know, because there's a lot of inventory management when it comes to the puzzles. The combat's really easy, though. Um, I would say it's pretty accessible. Right. And, like I said, I think at the time, 
publishers, especially a big publisher like Nintendo, were trying to figure out what to do with horror. Because like horror was an established genre, it had had a huge explosion, and most people were kind of content to say like, okay, we're just going to incrementally push the genre forward, but mm-hmm. these games are starting to feel, to non-horror gamers, I'm saying, we're starting to feel jank. And like... Sure. That was a big problem. And once again, I think you can look at... I don't really view Resident Evil as a solution to the problem that succeeded because it just changed the genre entirely. Sure. And so if you look at this game, to me, it's much, much, much more elegant. And it totally worked because, like, all of my friends played this game. But then, like, Mm. none of those same friends had played any deep survival horror game. Like, none of them. Well, it it didn't hurt that it was marketed heavily. I mean, it was like a big deal, and Nintendo Power pushed it a lot, and it had a lot of buzz behind it. Right. And, you know, the GameCube was kind of hurting for software anyways, so, I mean, I feel like GameCube fans flocked to it. Right. But, the other thing, too, the big point I'm going to keep coming back to, and then, and this is the end of my, like, big intro (laughs) that I wrote in rage 30 minutes before we started recording is that there's still nothing else like it there wasn't anything like it at the time Mm. and there still isn't anything else like it that 90s lovecraftian psychological horror thing has not continued to be a thing the sort of oversaturated colorful horror stuff like hasn't continued to be a thing if you look at lovecraft adaptations as i referenced earlier they're fucking dire they all have cthulhu in the name and they're all just like (laughs) bad i mean they're either just like first person shooters or i guess the last one was a bit of like a walking simulator and then like someone just put out like a mystery game that's kind of like lovecrafty it's like they're just not good the aesthetics are super boring they're all fucking brown and green they're all just like not good and you look at eternal darkness and it's like okay this feels way more inspired as a take on this thing Hmm. I also think it's hurt somewhat by the fact that it never got a sequel because it like really, really needed a sequel to like finesse all these elements. It's like when we were talking about Mm. Fatal Frame, I mean, I feel like this is like if Fatal Frame never got a sequel, we would be way Hmm. harsher on it, you know, or like there would just be less like nostalgia in some ways. Like, yeah, this game really needed a fucking sequel and it didn't get it. (laughs) And it, I mean, it never even got a port, so it's like forever stuck on GameCube. Right. Yeah. It's it's a dead game. I mean, we maybe yeah. we'll get a Switch remaster or something, but doubt it. Doubt it. Yeah. I mean, doubt it. Nintendo's got Luigi's Mansion. They're good on horror. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, full disclosure, we played this on an emulator. We used the Dolphin emulator, so it's. I mean, it's like ninety nine point nine percent there i would actually say it's more than 99 point because it's it's got several enhancements i mean i played it at 4k and widescreen so it's a pretty great experience yeah i mean i played it on a wii like a year ago or a couple years ago and Mm. i mean i do think there is a difference in the graphics like it's kind of like when we were talking about the resident evil remaster how unmodded it it's kind of weird looking yeah and there's something off-putting about it that's kind of going on in this game like 
if because like okay basically we played like a bootleg hd remaster <laughs> so sure but i mean aren't all hd remasters just bootleg hd remasters no because this one had like i had some hitching it had this weird purple flash that would happen sometimes uh, oh yeah you can fix that there was a lot of graphical i fixed it glitches that yeah i fixed it too but there's a lot of graphical glitches that would pop up every time i would change the settings in dolphin emulator i mean like overall it looks good but it's the same thing yeah. with if you take a game from this time and you just grab it and drop it onto a pc it looks kind of weird like yeah there's supposed to be some schmutz over everything <laughs> as we discussed like you're just getting the you're getting the raw the raw spookums and yeah. spookums are like chicken i don't think they're supposed to be raw man you gotta cook that shit up a little bit <laughs> so like i mean i noticed that when you're talking about like the graph your criticism of the graphics like i'm not saying they're all invalid but there was a couple where i was like this maybe could be that we mm. did sort of like a bootleg hd remaster i mean to me it looks good because i've played the game fucking nine times before this and like i'm down but if it was my first experience you know interesting same with like the resident evil remaster like i know what that game is supposed to look like i've played jill's campaign like fucking 10 times like <laughs> so i could even without the mods i was like okay i kind of see what's going on and then the mods fixed it i don't know just food for thought thank you for listening to zero brightness if you'd like to support us directly you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness you can also find and interact with us on facebook Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. So this game, to me, the story, the way it flows, the way it's built, makes me feel like it's the never-ending story meets Quantum Leap. Yeah. So, so you're this girl. Her grandpa dies. You go to his mansion. You talk to the lead detective on the case. He doesn't give a damn. And uh, you say, you tell him to go screw himself, and you're gonna figure it out yourself. Right. Because she's a badass. She's showing off her midriff <laughs> with flared pants. Yeah, dude. It was the '90s. You're sort of playing as her for most of the game. But really, what happens is that uh, you find the Necronomicon, Ex Mortis. <laughs> yeah. A.K.A. the Tome of Eternal Darkness. Right. In a uh, secret study in the mansion. And as you read it, you relive the experiences of the other people that have come into contact with the ne- Necronomicon. Right. So, e- each there's 12 chapters of the game and each chapter you're playing as a different person through time and space that has come into contact with this thing right and so the structure of the game is like the mansion is your hub world basically each Mm -hmm. chapter that you play gives you you keep the abilities that you learn from the chapter like you learn how to solve puzzles but then you also gain like magic spells and runes that you get to keep from the chapter so after each chapter you're able to go around and solve another puzzle or two and progress further in the hub world um Mm -hmm. in the stories you're reading like you mentioned you're playing as different characters uh but it's really over like is it 
four, three or four different environments that you keep revisiting as yes. different characters and in different time periods. So certain things change. And they are of wildly varying quality. Right. So the two things about this game that I'll totally grant you is number one, it's too long. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, some of the environments are not great. So in a game that only has like four worlds, if you will, like one of them just honks. Like, yeah. it's super not good. And I think that's maybe the one that you go back to like the most. Yeah. It's like a. Uh like underground city ruins in the Middle East, you go back there several times. Uh, there's another one that's uh, in a jungle, like a temple in the jungle. Oh, yeah, the Cambodian one. I like that also, one. Also, not great. No. I like that I don't one. like it that much. Yeah, I thought that um, I thought that one was like what the Middle Eastern one was like trying to be, but mm, better. Because it had like traps and it has hidden stuff you can find. And like, it's a little more, I just thought it was more interesting to me. Yeah, uh, we'll get to my, my problems with that. <laughs> uh, next, we the mansion becomes a playable place. Which is cool. I, um, I like the mansion yeah, a lot. Yeah, for sure. And then probably the coolest one is a uh, church, like an old monastery. Yep. The church is the best. And the church is cool because it's the one that it feels the most dynamic and that like changes over your yeah. different playthroughs. Because like you go there in the past, like way in the past, and you go there during like World War One, where it's being used as like yeah. a field hospital. Um, it's super cool. Uh, but so the thing about that is that I feel like it was the developers are looking at survival horror and they're looking at like whatever 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 and they're trying to figure out how to make like backtracking more interesting i feel like mm. and i don't think they really achieve it i mean it works for the church every time i went back to church was awesome it works for the mansion and then the two sort of like crypt ruins yeah, yeah. it doesn't really work because they're the least interesting areas and they're the ones that yeah. they make you do the most like running around in because i think they're the biggest too like especially the Middle East one is like the biggest area I think, and like yeah. it just it doesn't really work. And so once you get I don't know sixty percent of the way through the game, you're in for some slogging until you get to like the last ten percent, which I like because um, like the end of the game you basically get to go under the mansion into like <laughs> yeah. uh, a necropolis, a dead city. Uh, yeah. that's sort of like the seat of whatever, you know, evil God. Uh, and that's actually really cool. I like that area a lot just cause it looks cool. And they, another Lovecraft thing that they nail is a sense of scale. So like mm, yeah. essentially like a hallmark of Lovecraft's writing is that you sort of go from the human world to this, the world of the ancient gods, which everything is, is incomprehensibly huge. Mm, and I thought yeah. like, in the necropolis in this game they did a really good job with just very few elements of communicating just like how huge and unfathomable it is it does look cool but at the same time they reuse that place like so you have to do the same exact long puzzle twice through two different time periods super weird decision to do that sort of stuff i don't know it, do, it really does feel like they padded it for length well, and it's also weird because like to see the true ending of the game, you have to beat the game three times, like because there's three gods um, and each god is a different alignment. Well, there's four technically, but there's three like main gods 
and each of them is a different alignment for your magic, which we'll talk about in a minute. And at the beginning of each playthrough, you choose an alignment. And so if you play the game through and you finish it with all the alignments, you uh, you get to see like the true ending of the game. And so that's why like a true playthrough of this game is like you play it three times. So if that's the idea, and I and I think it's it's a cool idea. It's executed well for what it is, but it's like why would you pad out the game? Just like be more explicit about the fact that you're supposed to like you know just play it three times. And I don't know, it's weird. And this would definitely not be a game that I would like just like pick up and start over again like right after I finished. Uh, I mean, I have because I really liked it, <laughs> but. I, I see what you're saying, yeah. but no, I, I've always kind of thought that that was a sort of weird idea and like a weird choice. It's over 10 hours. I mean, that's a big chunk of time. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. I think it could have been closer to like seven, eight, maybe, and still had the same sense of scale and been more replayable. Instead of 12 chapters, they could have done like six to eight chapters, I think. Yeah, because even like if it was nine, for example, and you cut like one return Mm -hmm. to each of the like worst environments you know i mean yeah like that that's the thing too is like this game we we talked about it before too with resident evil remaster that it's like if you like an old horror game you're always thinking about like the first few hours of it yeah i think with eternal darkness it is a little bit of a slow start and once you get to the middle is like the real like good shit once you get to the the church shit yeah the end is like pretty cumbersome totally and like i would say that if you're playing this game like you're gonna get to the last third and just be like oh my god okay so some nuts and bolts stuff uh you can save anywhere which is like totally cool um sometimes you can't save in certain rooms it's just because there's like a bad guy there or whatever but it's never like dire um there's infinite inventory, so you don't have to juggle that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The magic system does have some interesting qualities. So as, as you're adventuring around, you'll find runes, and sometimes you'll find like spell recipes. And essentially, you put runes together, and uh, like it might, it might call for three runes. You stick them together, and it'll cast the spell. Uh, the spell casting takes a minute, and you have to stand still while the spell is being cast or you will cancel the spell. So there's right. a little bit of a risk versus reward when you're dealing with bad guys. Like, do you really want to, like, run out of the room and, like, heal yourself or just, like, you know, the time management? Are they going to rush you or not? You know? So, right. yeah. Um, there's, like, a dozen spells in the game. Uh, some of them you're going to use constantly. Uh, and some of them you may, like, never really use outside of, like, a puzzle or two. Kind of underutilized. Um, but at the same time, like, a couple of them weren't really fun. Like, there's one where you have to, uh, summon a little creature, and then you can control it. And do, you know, things like that. Um, it's kind of cool, but, uh, like, summoning, like, bad guys to take over them seemed really ineffective and underutilized. So the thing about the magic system uh, is that I I agree with you. I think it's super underutilized because it's really, really cool. Yeah. And so the, the thing I liked about it is basically in your menu, you have a screen. You're able to go in there and 
see what you've collected. So you can collect runes, and then you can collect a translation of what the rune means, mm-hmm. and then you can collect a spell. So if you want to follow the game and the game's flow, you basically wait until you have all three of those things, you put together a spell, and then you can use it, and you can assign it to like five quick buttons too, so you can quick cast spells. Um, now, what's funny is that you can actually totally not do that, and you can just figure out what spells are and how they work way before the game tells you how to do them. So, like, especially once you get to about halfway through, you can have, like, every spell in the game and just have to know what they are and figure it out for yourself. Yeah, they just show up as question marks if you don't, if you never found the spell recipe. Yeah. But, but like, so it's basically like a sentence. Like, you pick... Uh, you basically pick like an alignment, you pick a verb, and then you pick a target. Yeah. And so you can like, you know, you can figure out the healing spell before you get the scroll because it's like, oh, project self. That's the healing spell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Something. Like and then that. You, the yeah the alignment decides whether it affects your health, your sanity, your MP, or all three. Okay. So we should talk about the alignments. It's it's either red, blue, or green. And so right. when you do the heal spell, if you do heal red, that's your life bar, because your life bar is red. Heal blue, which is your magic, it'll bring your magic back. And heal green will bring your sanity back. Right. And then there's a purple alignment that does all, all of them. Yeah. And once you get that, you only use that spell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, purple god master race. Mantarok master race. Mantarok forever. Uh, it's... It's cool. It's a really cool system. And the thing that I wanted more of was to be able to make my own shit or to have some sort of flexibility, which the game kind of teases you with by not being like Zelda and like only giving you something when you get the prescribed item. Yeah. It kind of like teases this other way of being, but then it never follows up on it. And it ends up feeling like a little bit shallow because also, like you said, I mean, so there's a bunch of really cool spells. There's like, you can summon monsters, you can do energy blasts. Like there's some interesting shit you can do, but at the same time, a lot of it isn't like super effective in combat. Mm -hmm. So you're going to trend towards just being like a paladin, basically, where you just fight with swords, maybe enchanted swords, and then like you just heal yourself a lot. Totally. But the thing that is cool about the game is that it has these elements of open-endedness. Like it basically allows you to build a loadout if you don't want to just play the game straight. Sure. Uh, it doesn't, like I said, it's not like a very well implemented system because it doesn't incentivize you to do that, mm-hmm. but it does let you do that. So like, I've definitely done playthroughs where I'm doing a full playthrough, you play it three times. And then like on my second time, I'm like, okay, I'm a summoner. I'm just going to summon monsters uh, all the time, you know, or yeah. like, okay, well now, you know, now I'm like just a warrior or like whatever. And like, it, it is a surprisingly flexible system and you can kind of make your own fun with it. Yeah, the game does push you towards, like, chopping heads off with swords, though. That's, like, really the most efficient way to do combat. No, I know, and it's it's actually a weakness of the game, and I totally agree with you. Because, like, even another thing that I think some people maybe don't figure out right away is that, like, you don't have to target enemies. And if you're surrounded by enemies, it's way better to not target, mm. actually. And especially if you get into using magic... 
a lot of times like you just won't even use your targeting much anymore because you'll just be basically just like brawling with dudes just smacking whoever gets near you and then sending out like energy blasts and shit yeah so there is a surprising depth and um flexibility to the combat but the game doesn't incentivize you to find it really or use it at all so there's also three levels of magic and so like you know normal magic spells are like three runes and then there's five rune and seven rune ones too one thing that's super annoying at least it was to me is that you have to relearn all the higher level spells again but you just add the power rune like three times yeah and so like you have to do do that menu juggle like twice after you after after you've already learned them all just so you can unlock the higher power level ones yeah no i i totally agree with you it's once again it's like it's hinting at this depth but then it's actually like kind of stupid yeah (laughs) and so yeah let's let's talk about the red blue and green alignments they're sort of arbitrary and they don't add a lot to the gameplay well in what way i i actually find it annoying because like okay so there's zombies they're red blue or green and so you know it's kind of like paper rock scissors so like green's a little more powerful against blue and blue's a little more powerful against red and red's a little more powerful against green etc like pokemon and like the opposite way like it would be weaker against the other one but so there's blue red and green bad guys everywhere which one makes it look really stupid and goofy and two is just like sort of like another annoyance layer to the game that i I feel like the alignments are just annoying well i i mean i think it's to make you think a little bit and to be a little more intentional with like your spell casting because like you can totally level dudes especially once you have the enchant weapon and the like energy blast spells yeah i mean purple swords forever yeah well yeah exactly <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> funny that they but i guess like technically that's missable so yeah i think like a lot of a lot of people are meant to miss it on their first playthrough or something the the reason why there's a fourth rune is that it's universal so it's good against everything so once you get yeah. that you know instead of enchanting your sword with red to kill green guys or whatever you you just enchant your sword purple and just like leave it at that and that's so much better than having to deal with alignments to me yeah no i'm with you i think it's like it's a cool idea and it's a cool system that isn't fully utilized and i remember like so the last time i played this game before i played it for the show i was like super into the magic system and i just like got really into it and ultimately i was like god i wish this game just had more going on with this because it's such a cool system but i'm not really like getting feedback you know for pouring time into learning it and like being good at it and blah 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 yeah totally and that's like i said i feel like uh, ultimately it's like man this game needed a sequel like really bad to like finesse all these elements and have a deeper magic system Mm -hmm. and etc so there's there's environmental stuff that's also aligned like you mentioned earlier sometimes there's like electrified floors yeah yep and all they do is just like annoy the piss out of you so it you just have to use the other alignments like shield and the shield will last long enough for so you can run through the electric floor yeah it's really weird i mean i don't think it adds a ton to the game yeah i mean the game has they're very zelda e puzzles 
Yeah, I was going to mention that. The the level design is sort of like Indiana Jones meets Zelda sort of thing. Yeah. So there's like traps everywhere, like Indiana Jones. Like you step on a plate and a saw comes out of a wall. Super not into that. Well, I like that stuff just because it really drives home the aesthetic. Like once again, Mm -hmm. I think if 80s and 90s movies are such an influence on this. And yeah, just making you think of Indiana Jones. It's like, oh yeah, like that fits with the aesthetic. Same with the music in the game. Like, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's like the best, but at the same time, I think it fits in with that whole aesthetic realm so well that I end up liking it. And also, I really like the little bootleg Afrahaza, like, hey, that's like plays all the time. (laughs) I love that shit. To be honest, I can't even... I can't even, like, bring any of the soundtrack to mind right now. Except for, like, the creepy voices and stuff. Well, I mean... And, like, the yeah. super annoying voices that, like, repeat the rune name. <laughs> park on, park on, park. <laughs> Shit's gonna haunt me forever. I I mean, yeah, I like I like the magic voices. The, the magic monster voices. But, I mean... I hate it. I think the thing, too, is that it it fits with the aesthetic it creates a vibe i mean like we we didn't even talk about the music in fatal frame one in that episode um because there's not a lot to talk about exactly (laughs) and i feel like this music is similar except that it super fits in with the aesthetic of the game like so well that you don't notice it which is kind of its own virtue like i've watched so many cheap cheesy j-horror movies that a fail frame had had like a really like dead-on accurate uh sorry um dead-on balls accurate uh (laughs) recreation of like a j-horror movie soundtrack i would have been super jazzed you know like i wouldn't listen to it or it wouldn't have like blown my mind or been like this great musical experience but it was like it would have just been a detail in a game full of cool details you know, that I could have really latched onto and enjoyed. I think that's yeah. how the music is like in this game to me. Yeah. I just, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember <laughs> any of it. Yeah. It's kind of forgettable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, like I said, the rest of this game, I mean, like I said, I'm not like disagreeing with you. I'm just explaining why I find value in the thing that you so vociferously, <laughs> <laughs> right off um so we haven't talked about the the game's big hook at the time which was the insanity effects oh yes so if a zombie eyeballs you you lose a little sanity it's a green bar yeah and every time you lose a little sanity the camera tilts a little bit <laughs> yeah and once the camera it tilts so much you start uh seeing weird things experiencing weird things there's fourth wall breaking stuff going on yeah um it's kind of cool i guess okay it is cool uh it's like an audio visual experience yeah there's some good ones like it'll delete your save that won't fuck fuck me up yeah like i legitimately i was like this fucking emulator yeah (laughs) or like there's one where you cast a healing spell and your character's head explodes like the first time that happens it fucking gets you yeah it's kind of corny but yeah the another one i really liked is when it uh it switches your video out 
It, it like, oh, yeah. kinda, like tricks you into thinking your like TV went to a different input. Yeah. But it's got like a straight like 2001 interface. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> I, was good. I mean, like there's some, the best ones in my opinion are really subtle. Like you have it on the list here, the bugs on your screen. Uh, that one doesn't have, so a lot of the big ones, like the, like your character's head explainer at deleting your save, they'll have like a flash to white. And then yeah. it like resets the scene and your character will say like, this isn't happening. Right. Um, but there's a bunch of little subtle ones like that where that doesn't happen. And I actually liked those a lot more. Uh, there's some, Yeah, like the walls might start bleeding. Yeah. Or like you said, there's flies on the screen. There's like or, bugs um, that'll happen. It, Not like literal bugs, but like game bugs that'll happen that yeah. are insanity effects. But it won't flash to white. It's just like a, like doors won't open for you. One thing I liked was like sculptures in the house that start looking at you. Uh-huh. That was pretty good. Like... The thing is, I think this system, it's not perfect. It's very gimmicky. But once again, under the hood, it hints at this more subtle player manipulation that would have been cool if that had been, like, the angle. Yeah. So, like, it's it's a cool gimmick, but in terms of, like, psychological kind of insanity effects and stuff, I think... Silent Hill does a lot better job, well, uh, at least sure. in convi- yeah. But uh, it it's cute, like funhouse stuff. Yeah, I agree. And so the big issue with it for me, like as someone who's played this game so many times, is that like I'm really good at this game, <laughs> so like I don't get them ever unless I force myself to do bad. Yeah, I mean, even even if you're not good at the game, like halfway through, you're just gonna heal yourself constantly, and uh, yeah, just healing your green. Um, one thing, one thing we should have talked about when we were talking about magic in this game is that your magic replenishes itself as long as you're moving. Yeah. So a lot of times in the game, I feel like I've spent at least an hour of my gameplay time running in circles to get my magic back. Sure. And that's broken. Yeah, no, I I agree. But even with the insanity effects themselves, like it really feels like it's supposed to fuck with you for the first hour or two of the game, and then after that, they just like don't happen anymore. Yeah, and like sometimes I just let my insanity run down just to see them. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, and it's 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 definitely not implemented very well. The one thing I will say in its defense is that it does manage to throw some like good enemies at you that'll really deplete your sanity like early on when the little like skeletal dudes start popping out of people. Yeah. Like yeah. the those will really deplete your sanity. So will bosses, which is actually a cool mechanic because like mm-hmm. it's like an HP Lovecraft story where you see a monster and you just go crazy and then yeah. you have to like heal yourself to not lose health. So that's what I was going to say, though. What's underrated about it, it's definitely overrated as, like, a thing in general. But it's underrated as a combat mechanic because when your sanity runs out, when enemies look at you, you lose health. So you have to stay the fuck on top of it. Otherwise, you'll just start dying, right? Yeah, but I I feel like naturally you're just going to stay on top of it. You know, in the early game though, it's it's tricky. It's actually a challenge early in the game. One of the first spells you learn is to heal yourself too. Yeah, and once you once you get the runes for all three colors, you're pretty much set. Yeah, 
the thing I do like though also is that when you go insane, quote unquote, like when you lose your sanity completely, the music changes and it's really cool. Like it changes the atmosphere a lot and I kind of wish there was more of that in the game. Well, the Dolby surround kicks in. <laughs> yeah. You start hearing voices from all from all directions. Yeah. I thought that was really cool and yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, we've talked about a lot on the show when games make a choice to when they're going to fuck with the player or have psychedelic elements like is it going to be procedural or is it going to be scripted and it varies from game to game but there's definitely games like this that are an argument for the scripted scares actually being better and more effective so like i mean this game's not scary at all so the procedural scares aren't working here (laughs) (laughs) i think the game has a vibe but it's like a i don't know like the alignments so Okay, do, should we talk about the aesthetics a bit? Because, like, okay. So, to me, it looks sort of like a Nintendo 64 game with just, like, over-exaggerated lighting. And everything's prismatic colors because of the three alignments. So, it really looks like like Donkey Kong 64 for adults or something. Um, the The characters are stylized, like, in a way of, like... I don't know. What would you compare them to, like Sims One or something? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, okay, dude. Here's the thing: is that the look of this game? It's yeah, it's like a relatively standard, just like action adventure video game from 2002. I mean, the characters themselves just look like people. They kind of has that comic booky EC Comics look. It doesn't have a super distinct look, but I don't know. I mean, I like I said, I like a lot of the environments. I think the church you keep returning to is super cool. I think the mansion is super cool. The reason I like the mansion and some of the more colorful areas is that they have that 90s neo-gothic Victorian sort of look mm. like a lot of adventure games have, like Alone in the Dark had. I mean... You suddenly don't like Alone in the Dark, Mr. Fucking Donkey Kong 64 for adults. I mean, it's got that look. It's just it has better graphics than the older games. So I think it's maybe a little more stark. Like you could look at it and just be like, oh, like that looks kind of weird or goofy. But it's like the game has camp. Like you don't you don't think the like whole prismatic color thing is like a huge disservice to the game's art style? No, I don't think so. It's just so ugly. Like just having like red, green and blue and purple zombies everywhere i don't mind it i mean it looks like a box of crayons it looks like when you put like all the markers into end and you make a marker sword dude i mean i'm gonna say like if we go back to the other games from 2002 that we've been covering yeah resident evil has a tight as fuck aesthetic resident evil's an outlier i mean we look at the rest of them dude i mean like come on they're either totally desaturated or the use of color and some of the designs are goofy as fuck dude like i think a game like a horror game that had that much color and that had like all that shit going on and in the context of everything we talked about earlier i like it i think it works i mean like in the mouth of madness (laughs) is a very colorful movie a lot of it takes place in daylight it's jarring if you're expecting if you're not expecting it but if you are it's great well i like colorful movies i mean Suspiria and From Beyond. Yeah. More recently, Midsummer was really colorful. That was tight. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying that it's like colorful in a way that's a specific aesthetic that's calling to these specific 
influences and it works in that genre is it perfect no eternal darkness is the all that of 2002 survival horror games you're saying this like it's a bad thing and i'm just over here like i don't get why it's bad it's all that it is all that that's what i'm saying dude (laughs) like i think when it comes down to it it's just it's it's funny to me because i think a lot of the stuff that you're like saying as a criticism i'm either like yeah but like whatever or i'm like yeah "Yeah, that's why it works for me you know what i mean yeah i i don't have the history with it so i mean i came into this cold so i have nothing to blame but eternal darkness (laughs) i guess like for me i'm just a really big fan of taking things in context and so there especially if we're looking at these old games like i always have to take stuff in context in order to like really understand if something is good or bad i think that's how i that's how i look at everything you know it's like how i'm able to still talk about hp lovecraft and like yeah try and make some sort of cogent point about it or whatever even though like i agree that he's just like a shitty racist and a hack writer i think for me this game a lot of this game is this company who made pc action adventure games trying to make a game that like tweaks all the things about survival horror you know Mm -hmm. and i think they did that and i also think they did it in a way that's compelling it's not like fucking the office horror movie what's it called be quiet the quiet Mm -hmm. place (laughs) whatever oh yeah like that That was, was just jurassic park yeah and it was done in spite it was like horror sucks let me show you what's up it's like whatever these were clearly people who love horror and they love the specific vein of horror but they didn't want to make a survival horror game probably because like i said i mean this game feels more influenced by diablo than resident evil hmm yeah this is like fedora horror (laughs) god damn it james (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know what that means but fuck (laughs) he's like vape horror (laughs) no (laughs) No, it's not. This now you're just using ad hominem attacks. Like, come on, dude. Yeah, but it was funny. Yeah, and I, I guess. <laughs> well, let's talk some story. Let's talk some story. If you want, I don't, <laughs> no, this is fun. All right, James, tell me what you think about the story. I mean, so like, okay, you know. My elevator pitch was like Quantum Leap meets fucking NeverEnding Story. Uh-huh. And I think that works pretty good. I mean, so Alex is your main character, and you're jumping out of her body into the book, into like other uh, places in time. So, like, the first chapter, you go into this dude. He's like a Roman centurion mm-hmm. named Pius Augustus. And this is the first time you like explore the Middle East level. And he ends up being like the uh, the antagonist for essentially the entire game. But it's interesting that you play as him in the first chapter, right? And so, yeah, well, uh, you know, you get to the end of the first chapter, and he gets corrupted and turns all evil or whatever. And then you jump back into Alex, and essentially, like you know, at the end of each chapter, you know that you're going to go back into Alex's body, back to the mansion with some new skills. Maybe you can do a puzzle or two in the mansion before we find another page of the Tome of Eternal Darkness, which unlocks another chapter, essentially. 
Right. And that's kind of like the back and forth flow of the game. And I think that's pretty good. I like that setup. I mean, I like getting the piecemeal story through all the different characters through time. And the going back and forth and like collecting more skills is interesting. Especially once you start exploring the mansion um, in other periods of time. That's really interesting. Yeah. And the mansion is really cool because you see it like in its most degraded state like there's blood everywhere and there's like locked doors and there's just like weird stuff about so you get to go back it's still pretty nice i would like totally squat there oh yeah totally yeah (laughs) but it's cool because you get to go back and see like how certain things happened or like you know just kind of experience the story and the story is multi-layered in a cool way because there's they're obviously telling you the story of the tome and like these gods who are sort of wrestling for control of earth. But you're also sort of learning like the history of this family. And some of that's just through notes you find. And some of it is through playing as them. But like, they're basically just this immigrant family who struck it big. And then also unwittingly became like the guardians of this horrible evil force, you know? Which is pretty cool. And like even just learning about the gods, like they have their own mechanics and things that they need done to exist or to be protected. So like a lot of characters will have like a turn at the end of their story where they become like a guardian or they become like something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. So, you know, I'll, I'll agree. The jumping back and forth in time, all that, the layered story is really cool. The problem with all of the jumping back and forth is that you jump into 12 different characters and some of them are really fucking stupid. And then the ones that are cool don't get enough time. And you never really get the chance to like really give a shit about most of them. Sure. So that's like a big problem. So, for example, you know, after you jump into Pius, jumping into Pius Augustus is cool because he becomes the like main antagonist of the game. But then the next person you jump into, she's like a Cambodian slave yeah. Um she's just like really generic. You don't get any backstory really. And then she dies at the end of her chapter. And she that's it. I mean, there's like so little to say about her. Yeah. I mean, I agree, but once again, it's sort of a bit of a stylistic trope uh in terms of like these stories, right? Like when H.P. Lovecraft was writing these stories, they weren't character-driven at all. The characters were there to sort of witness everything around them and were ultimately made to like seem small uh, hmm. c- against like the machinations of these horrible eldritch gods. So I guess to me, it's like these characters mostly feel the same way. Some of them have personality and are cool, but... A lot of those chapters, too, that are the most forgettable are also the shortest. So, like, I really yeah. only think it's towards the end that you get some some chapters that are pretty long with characters that you don't really give a shit about. So, to me, it kind of passes my, like, bullshit test of, like, do I have <laughs> to care? And the game's like, no, it's already over. And I'm like, oh, sick, thanks. <laughs> There's parts of it that are really awesome and parts of it that aren't. And early in the game, I think it's good at just kind of rushing you past. So like, yeah, the second chapter with Elia in the Cambodian ruins just rushes right past you. It's the same with actually yeah. the first time you go to the church 
with like the dude who's trying to warn Charlemagne. Uh, yeah, Anthony. Anthony. Which yeah, like that's a really cool. Cha- that's the next chapter. Yeah, and that one's cool because you have your character and you've got a couple supporting characters. Right. And you're there long enough to like it gives you a little time to give a shit. And that's why it's one of the most effective parts of the game. But it also rushes right past you and it's mostly just like a horror short about a guy turning into a zombie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like that's that's what I mean. I think this game is juggling a lot of influences and there's mm. moments where it's almost like an object in shitty lighting. And so like you can turn it one way and see one thing and you can turn it the other way and see something totally different. So like these kind of chapters you can look at and say like, well, they're too short and they breeze past or it's like, oh, they're really short and they breeze past, but they have like a nice exclamation point. Like I think that the first two chapters, like, yeah, the first one's cool because Pius becomes like the, the main antagonist in the game. But those first few chapters are also just really like vague because you don't know what's going on in the game yet. You don't even have all the systems in the game, I think, until the third chapter. Like you don't have all the yeah. meters, you don't have all the spells or like even just the basics of of the spells and things you can do in the game. So they're almost like tutorial levels. And it's really in the middle to the end of the game that you start getting into like meaty stuff. You know, like chapters that actually go on long enough that have something going on with the characters and that actually like give you something to dig into. Yeah. So the fourth chapter is kind of just a retread since you're back in the Middle East level from the first level. Yeah. But uh, the fifth one is pretty interesting because you're a ancestor of the main character. Right. Uh, Maximilian Roivas. Who lived in the mansion? Yeah, he's a a jolly robusto old fellow. <laughs> yeah, briefly. With a flintlock pistol. Uh, and this is another chapter that gives you a little breathing room and time to care, and it's effective for that reason too. And it it ends with him getting locked up in a sanatorium. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and the opening of this chapter is great. It's really slow and atmospheric, and you're just sort of running around the mansion. And mm-hmm. yeah, definitely some some Resident Evil vibes a little bit. I mean, and like I think the next two chapters that let you go to the church are also really cool, which is like seven and nine. Um, yeah, because they show you different sides of the same environment that's also like the first and third sure chapters where that are in the which are both in the middle east are cool because you see different areas and you see different sides of the same environment mm-hmm. like i don't think it's until later when you start to maybe get a little bit like sick of some of the environments because they keep making you go back but you don't see anything new right yeah totally you know and uh <laughs> it's funny some of the characters have like gimmicky little skills like oh, one yeah. of the guys is like basically Indiana Jones. I think it's for the Cambodian level. Uh-huh. Um, Lindsay is his name. Uh, he can brush things. Yeah. So, so if he sees something interesting, he'll take out his little archaeologist brush and brush it off and reveal something. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's just, they're just cool little stories and they all like tie in to this larger story. I mean, once again, to me, it's like about establishing a vibe 
And like, that's why, so like chapter nine, which is the one that takes place in the church in world war one is like the best because the yeah. atmosphere is just fucking oppressive. Yeah. And the sound design's cool. You hear like bombs going off outside and machine yeah. guns. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a thunderstorm going on too. And since you've been there a couple times previously, um, shit's different. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, there's tents like set up in the building, you know? So, right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's just got a vibe and the whole game, like the way these stories are presented, like when they're good, you know, or good enough, even if I just want to capitulate to your rampant uh, negativity, um, I would say that like it even just works because like there's a little intro and outro for each and it's like narrated um, by uh Edward. Edward. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I forgot his name. Uh, it's narrated by like Edward Royvas, Alex's grandpa. Grandpa. Yeah. It's narrated by grandpa. You get the same like sort of little visual effects. Like it just has this feeling of like you're watching Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, or Goosebumps because it's corny as fuck. Well, and here's the thing. Now, if you guys don't know, uh, <laughs> the other podcast I do, Demon Daddies, has an entire fucking episode that's just me and Monica going off about how much we love kids horror TV. Like, I love Are You Afraid of the Dark? I love Goosebumps too, and I love all it's the Goosebumps. It's not on the same option. level, but Goosebumps is is pretty good. Like, I really like that stuff, and so the cheese factor and all that shit. It doesn't. Not only does it not bother me, I am also entirely a hundred percent here for it. I think there was just a little magic in that like '90s Canadian teen yeah, drama, they're all sort of thing, with like fucking "Hey dude" and "Salute your shorts" and "Are you afraid of the dark?" All that shit was Canadian, right? Yeah, all Canadian. Yeah. You can tell because yeah. someone will be like, "Oh, what are you talking about?" <laughs> it's like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, that shit's good. It's it's really good, and they even made pretty good stuff up until just a few years ago we found like all the like they made a show called haunting hour and a bunch of other ones that we got into hmm. that were more recent they're still good same vibe nice just better like bigger budget better vfx and stuff but same vibe nice. um animorphs yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> like i think that saying this game has that sort of vibe and energy like does not bother me at all because like i mean it makes me like it more seeing it in that list. yeah that totally because like i mean i guess this game was m-rated but like why though it's mostly like pg-13 so i guess the trick is to like you know crack or open some orange soda throw some <laughs> pizza rolls in the microwave fuck yeah fucking 90s kid out yeah well because i mean here's the thing if this game was marketed to you as like it's super scary and dark you would start playing it and immediately just be like, well, the fuck it is like, it's called eternal darkness, dude. Yeah. But that's a goofy fucking name for a game, dude. Like, <laughs> no, it's metal, dude. This game is not in the fucking metal at all. If you, if someone told you to go listen to a metal band called blackest ever black, wouldn't you think that it was a fucking joke, dude? Well, that was a great joke in the spinal tap movie about it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but black metal is tight, right? No, black metal's goofy as shit, and it's only good because it's basically like if Chuck Berry did meth and hated everything. Wow. Now that's a hot take. Yeah. Well, like here's it. my other hot take. Metal's stupid. Here's my other hot take. Music is stupid. Like, everything's <laughs> stupid. Just have fun with it and everything enjoy it. Everything is stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, black metal's the stupidest, though. And I like black metal. Like... <laughs> 
but it is absolutely the dumbest form of music. I will, I will like, I'll argue this all day. <laughs> yeah, but like metal, dude. It's <laughs> my only argument against that. Yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not on opposite sides of this. <laughs> so this is like the pointy guitar of survival horror. Yes, it's the BC Rich Warlock brought to you by Nintendo. Wow. If you don't know what nice. we're talking about, Google BC Rich Warlock <laughs> right now, and it will all make sense. You know, for uh, Ocarina of Time, Nintendo and Jackson Guitars got together <laughs> to make a Sora guitar. No, Zora? The fucking fish people? Zora. A Zora guitar. And look that shit up. Is that It's real? like a fucking fish. Yeah. Oh my god, that is absolutely hideous. It looks like yeah. a bony fish. Yeah, it's like a bony fish. Dude, I want it though so bad. That fretboard, dude. Oh my god, yeah, it's like I, I, you know, I wrote into that sweepstake. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like um those really ugly fish that have the lights coming out of their heads. What are they called? The angler. Yeah. yeah. It's like that if it was designed by H.R. Geiger and then like vomited yeah. out of a fourteen-year-old boy's mouth. Hmm. It looks a little bit like the Chud logo. <laughs> yeah, very Chud. <laughs> Eternal Darkness, all right. <laughs> the best chapter in the game, the World War One Reporter, is ruined by the goddamn boss fight at the end, which is infuriating. I hated it. Hated every second. I mean, I guess. Like, so like, you're fighting this guy... But, like, not really. He's just, like, standing there summoning zombies. And every once in a while, he'll flash. And you have to hit him when ma- with magic when he flashes. But, like, you can't move when you're casting your spell. And there's, like, zombies. And the amount he flashes is very small. So you almost have to, like, predict when he's going to start flashing so you can, like, cast your spell ahead of time. I don't know. I hated it. Well, okay. Zero out of ten gameplay. <laughs> All right, but do you know what it reminded me a lot of that I hated and you totally didn't have my back on it, so I'm not going to get your back on this? <laughs> the last boss of Silent Hill. Oh, well, I don't know, man. I was, like, quick saving to get through this fight. Like, I didn't I didn't have that problem with Silent Hill. Well, I didn't have a problem with this fight, and I did have that problem with Silent Hill. <laughs> I had the circle strafe. I had the janky Touché. circle strafe. Yeah. So... Touche. I don't know. I mean, I see what you're saying, but... Didn't like it. I mean, I also think every boss... I mean, is there a survival horror game with good boss fights? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I mean, Jack in RE7 was cool. Until he turned into a big monster. Mm, Yeah, I keep just thinking of, like, him and Mr. X. If we're talking classic survival horror, yeah, I can't think of any good bosses. No, they're all terrible. It's just not a compelling part of of the game design. It just feels like you're going through the motions. Yeah. Oh, it's a game. You got to have a boss. Well, and it's also why, dude, this is totally off topic, but like, I think with survival horror games, like the survival element is always kind of weird and sometimes shoehorned in. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can see it really clearly in games that fully go for the survival element because it kind of feels like you're always in a boss fight. Um, The two (laughs) examples that spring to mind are like Siren and the evil within uh Mm. i love both of those games don't get me wrong but like there are definitely some questionable 
game design moments because like they're just pushing the survival so hard that it's like okay and because in these games the boss fights are just checkpoints for you to waste items and ammo on yeah totally you know yeah and so when you play a game that's kind of all like that, it's a little bit jarring. It kind of makes you realize that it's it's actually harder to marry survival and horror, you know, than it seems. Yeah, because they're not even like they're not really even like skill checks because sometimes they're just so fucking janky. It's just like random. I don't know. Yeah, like that boss fight you're talking about is just a timing mini game. It's basically like a rhythm game. Yeah, like it's stupid, stupid. Yeah, no, it's totally stupid. Looking at this list, I really think that if they had just cut like the last two times you go back to the the Middle Eastern ruins, which would have been chapter Mm -hmm. eight and chapter 11, and then like maybe only made you do the necropolis once. Like, yeah, I mean, I do like the grandpa as a character, but having to do the same same thing twice with grandpa and Alex gets old pretty quick. Yeah. I did like how the the last area when you actually go down into the necropolis with Alex like makes you use your magic a little bit more and kind of justifies you having all the shit you have at that point. Um, yeah, because like I said, I think the magic system is underutilized, but uh, I, I kind of like how they how they bake that into the end. So it is a bit of a skill check or it's like kind of making sure you're paying attention. That's most of the game. We're not going to go bit by bit on the story. I think if you want to play it, you should just do it. Um, but I do want to talk about this game's like legacy and its diehard fans and sort of like because people love this fucking game. Like to me, being an outsider to not only just the GameCube but the, this game itself, like. It's pretty mediocre on a lot of levels. Like, like I, you know, I'm a bit of a troll, but I mean, like, I don't hate it. I just think it's super mediocre and pretty forgettable. Um, help me understand why this is a classic. Because people really think that this is like a timeless classic. Well, like I said, to me, it's all about context. And it's all about the fact that no one else has done what this game did you have to look at the breadth of what it did to judge it right and to me what that is is that they made a classic lovecraftian horror tale that is structured and layered in the same way that an anthology horror film or book would be And they wrapped it all together with an aesthetic that's like been established within that genre. And they made a bunch of little references and they made everything cohesive and put it all together into one game. There's nothing else like that. There's nowhere else you can go to get that experience. And if you like that thing, it's like catnip, you know? (laughs) I mean, and when, once you accept that, like, you you realize just like how valuable this game is as like a work of art. You know, I was thinking about this a lot because mm-hmm. I was thinking about um, recently we had on Whitney Chavis as our guest to talk about Deadly Premonition. Mm-hmm. She had a different experience from us because she hadn't seen Twin Peaks before she played Deadly Premonition. 
She's like mm-hmm. the ultimate Lord Master knower of all when it comes to Deadly Premonition. But <laughs> she actually got into the game first and then went and watched Twin Peaks. And she said she wasn't a big Lynch fan. And even at that, like her interest in Twin Peaks is mostly from Deadly Premonition, right? Right. Yeah. So I think if you approach a work that's highly referential of another work and you're not familiar with it, you're either going to have that experience where it's like, okay, I'm into it now because of this thing. Or you're going to have the opposite, which is like, I just don't get this and I still don't care. Right. I think that's kind of what you're experiencing where it's like, I still don't get this and I still don't care. (laughs) And I will say that, like, I think the game itself has enough issues and has enough shortcomings that it's a hard sell if you're not already into all of the things that it is placing itself into. If you're not already a fan of the lineage and continuity that it's placing itself into, you could easily walk away feeling the way that you're feeling. That's my theory. I, I think you're downplaying the fandom of this game. And I don't think a lot of the fandom like loves like Lovecraft literature. You know what I mean? The, do you think a lot of that like just kind of vehement fandom is just like kind of like a spin-off of the GameCube fandom and a little bit of like nostalgia goggles for like you know what I mean? Well, I'm going to say that even if you don't give a shit about Lovecraft and that whole thing, I mean, there's still nothing else that did what this game did. And I mm-hmm. think that you can not like all that stuff and still be touched by it or still feel that it's like cool. You know, mm-hmm. I guess that's like my explanation for it, but it's still sort of the same thing. I think you maybe are also underestimating like the fandom around Lovecraft. Mm, maybe. Yeah, because I've, yeah, I've, I've l- really only dabbled a little bit in it and recently yeah and i mean also too like all the other stuff i was talking about like ec comics and anthology horror and that kind of stuff like those are big deals in like horror fandom communities i mean you go read like fangoria or room morgue and see the way that they talk about that stuff it's like you know it's it's sacred Hmm. and i agree that's all stuff that i really like so i get it and i totally agree um I think I'm maybe more into that stuff than like the trash horror stuff. And you're definitely more into like the trash horror stuff. Yeah, totally. Like I like that stuff, but it's not like my bread and butter in the same way that I feel like it's yours. I don't want to speak for you, but that's like the vibe I get, you know, from yeah, give me toxic Avenger five, like hurry the fuck up. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm less into that than I am like (laughs) more like classic stuff. And like, so for me coming to like, Lovecraft and like Howard and those guys a lot of it too was that like when I was like a teenager I was super into like difficult reading like stuff that was just Mm. very very dense and hard to read like I love Russian literature I love Thomas Pynchon like all this stuff that's just like word vomit and you have to sort it out and so I think that if you don't get into that style the stuff is just super tedious you know where Mm. it's just like oh my god why is he still talking or like why would you structure (laughs) a sentence like that you know And this game just throws it in your face right away. Like the opening, you know, like it's just like, this is what you're in for. This is what we're doing. That's, that's his long way of just saying, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, so, I mean, that's kind of my explanation. I mean, it's the same thing I said about deadly premonition, right? Like there's only one. 
But like for you, Deadly Premonition is a way easier sell. You love Twin Peaks. You love Kusoge. Like you have all this stuff that's like, I knew you were going to love that game. I didn't even have to, (laughs) I didn't have to worry about it. With this game, I didn't know if you were going to love it, but I didn't think you were going to actually message me. And I quote (laughs) three out of 10. (laughs) All right. Uh, After reconsidering, I would give Eternal Darkness a six out of 10. A high six, a high six. I think that's more reasonable because it's like it has all the same. Like the ironic thing about Eternal Darkness is like these guys were like, we're gonna fix survival horror, and then they made a game that has all the same problems as survival horror. They're just painted a different color. Yeah. Do you think this game has more in common with like just spooky action adventure games, like I don't know, like Soul Reaver? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, especially down to color palette, art style. I mean, put this up next to Nightmare Creatures, Soul Reaver, uh, like anything like that. You know, I mean, way, way before you would put it up next to Silent Hill, right? Yeah. Like, that's another thing too. Once again, I grew up with that stuff. I mean, at some point during every console cycle, I ended up with both like a Sony and a Nintendo console once like someone gave me a Sony console, but I always had a Nintendo yeah. console first, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I was always like a Nintendo kid. And so I was still looking for that horror stuff and having those experiences. So like I have a really soft spot in my heart for that kind of shit. And I think this game is definitely in that continuity more than it is survival horror. Mm, yeah, Totally. And also, like, I look at this fringy survival horror stuff, and it's, like, even further from this. It's, like, we're not even talking about the same type of game at all. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely, like, 3D action-adventure, like, most of all. Like, this has more in common with, like, Rayman 2 than it does with Silent Hill. Sure. Yeah, granted. Yeah. All day. And I think, too, just in terms of vibe, once again, the reason I harp on about all these 90s movies, like 90s Stephen King stuff, right? I love the 90s Stephen King movie adaptations. They're all, dude, they're cheesier than an extra cheese fucking pizza with a cheese crust, right? Like, (laughs) but if you like that, if like, if you're the kind of person who like gets excited to watch Storm of the Century again or Needful Things or like any of that stuff, like this game is probably going to like, push that button for you you know yeah. and like no shame no shame in the game like i love that shit that's my shit yeah tbs 1 p.m on saturday yeah 1997 exactly and i think that like it, it's not really like fair to look at this game outside of that context in my opinion once again maybe there's people out there who totally disagree with me and are like no this is a spook up classic like you're a fucking asshole but like that's always been my context context for this game. I mean, when it came out, there was a lot of hype around it. It was definitely spooky to get the sanity effects and like the vibe, you know, playing it alone on a CRT in your room or whatever, like blah, blah, blah. But like with the luxury of time and, you know, knowing what's up, I think it's just placed further and further into that one like continuity. Cause that's the same thing too. Like HP Lovecraft, the, the shit's not scary. It's interesting. They're like sci-fi stories really. I will say, I am reading a m- manga adaptation of uh, At the Mountain of Madness, and it's spooky as fuck. Yeah. 
But it's like that artist's rendition of it is just spooky as fuck. Well, there's scary ideas in there, right? Mm. And that's like, it's up to the artist's interpretation. I think the artist's rendering in the case of Eternal Darkness is more like In the Mouth of Madness. It's a little bit goofy, right? But there are artist renderings that are really scary. There's a fucking fantastic J-horror movie uh, called Marabito, which is Mm. essentially a J-horror twist on um, At the Mountains of Madness. Sick. And like... Oh my fucking God. Number one, it's one of my favorite movies ever. Number two, I'm getting chills right now just talking about it. (laughs) Fuck, I need to go watch that movie. I have it on DVD. Like, that's how much I like it. I have like 10 DVDs and that's like one of them. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait for the second volume of that manga to come out. Oh, so it's new. It's like ongoing. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes out in a month or two. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, the. There's multiple ways to attack anything, but I like these adaptations that do their own thing, put their own spin on it, come up with their own shit. And then if someone can do a straight adaptation, that's great. But like, it's hard. I do think that in the graphic novel format or in the manga format or whatever, it's actually easier to do it justice. Mm. I'm not sure why, but like I've actually read really good comics adaptations, like serialized comics adaptations of uh, Lovecraft stuff. Or mm. certain things that were more like in the style of Lovecraft. I can't think of any of them off the top of my head right now, of yeah. course. But there's definitely some good stuff there. It's it's much harder to do it as like a moving picture kind of thing, like a game or a movie or whatever. There's something about that that almost robs it of its power. Hmm. And like, well, it's, some yeah. of it's just so far fetched that how would you put that in a movie, right? Right. Easier to draw. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's definitely kind of like that power of the written word thing like you can write whatever and if the words are put together in the right order like you can summon this image in the reader's mind you know you don't exactly summon an image in a movie you just show someone an image and it has to be fucking cool you know so eternal darkness final verdict six out of ten (laughs) you heard it here folks (laughs) no that's you i don't agree at all i what do you give it what do you give it i don't do scores i don't do that and yeah you do motherfucker no i don't dude i don't (laughs) dude i don't do scores i don't do fucking lists at least not ordered lists like i'll say i still think this game is a classic and i've already given all i've given more than enough context i think that when placed within that lineage i think this game is a classic i think it's still fun and i will say for all the problems it has, I do think that the refinement to movement and combat and all that stuff make this game easier to pick up and play now than a lot of survival horror stuff. Yeah, so go ahead, go out, play that Switch port. <laughs> I mean, would, dude, would. Would, aka never. I mean, you, yeah, you would not. Okay, we've established. <laughs> Jeez. It's coming out right after that super mario sunshine port yeah there's a game that i don't really like actually yeah yeah never played it it's not bad it's just like the whole time you're playing it you're like why <laughs> i'll play it when they port it to switch why do i have AKA a super soaker never yeah. yeah mario with super soaker i'll play it after they release uh, mother 3 yeah for sure american mother 3 let's do it yeah well Kind of sounds like Game Club. Yeah. Speaking of Star Fox, too. <laughs> game Club. 
Uh, so we're doing uh, Alan Wake next week. Alan Wake. Okay. Got it for free. Yep. Hell yeah. Got staying on that vibe. Staying on that in the mouth of madness vibe. Uh, Twin Peaks games uh, uh-huh. coming at you. We're doing I all. I think there's only. I think there's only uh, one more. Mizerna Falls. Are there any other Twin Peaks games? I think that's it. If we can get Mizerna Falls running, we might be just uh, done. Done yeah. with them, dude. And then uh, what we were talking about? Uh, Clock Tower Super Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah. So why not? Okay. So Alan Wake SNES Clock Tower. Yeah, our first Super Nintendo game. Cool. We're gonna have to dust off the old Sufami. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Sufami Master Race. My hardware, yeah, that I definitely have. Yep. <laughs> I have a Super Famicom controller, but not the Super Famicom. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like the cute rainbow-colored buttons. Yeah. More than the pastel purple. It's very aesthetically pleasing. All right, so cool. Yeah, you can make a hint out of that. Yeah.